Tyler Clementi, as many of you know, was a Rutgers student who almost two years ago this month committed suicide. If you don't know the story, he was uh, a Rutgers student who his friends set him up. They put a secret, um, a hidden camera in his room while he was going to have a homosexual encounter with another man. And they put that footage and they spread it to their friends and they pass it on. And Tyler Clementi was so embarrassed and so ashamed, he wrote a note that says, jumping off the George Washington Bridge, sorry. He posted it on Facebook and he committed suicide by jumping off the bridge. In more recent news, the parents, as of last month of Tyler Clementi, and it was widespread news, I don't think anyone could have missed it, the parents left their local church because of clashing views on homosexuality. Because the church said that homosexuality was a sin and the parents couldn't stand that. Jane Clementi, the mother, says, I think some people think that sexual orientation can be changed or prayed over. But I know sexual orientation is not up for negotiation. I don't think my children need to be changed. I think what needed changing is attitudes or myself or maybe some other people I know. And increasingly what you're seeing is you're seeing these emotional stories like this and Christians that don't know how to defend their faith are left looking like hateful, bigoted idiots. And a lot of them are. A lot of them don't have any good reason to reject homosexuality. A lot of them really are homophobic and don't have any good reasons. And what we want to do is we want to separate ourselves from people like that. The big question that I hear all the time is, why do Christians care so much about homosexuality if it doesn't affect them? Why do you care if a gay couple wants to get married or adopt children? And we always see on the commercials or on the the reality TV shows, you see a gay couple that's nice and happy, they're loving, and then there's the angry Christian woman. I remember seeing like a reality show not too long ago in one of my college classes. And, you know, nice gay couple you know, two dudes and they're really great guys and they had a little son and they were doing like wife swap or something. I don't remember what it was, but the woman was like, no, this is wrong. I don't accept this. I just want you guys to know. And they're like, well, how could you, why, why, why do you care so much if it doesn't affect you? She's like, I don't know. Okay. I don't know why God said it. I don't understand God, but I know it's wrong. And she just looked terrible. And I think a lot of people view us in that way when we don't know how to, uh, defend our faith. So I think there's a lot of ways in which the church has failed in regard to this issue. I think we failed in, in the terms of compassion, forgetting that these aren't, this isn't just a, a philosophical topic, but this is relating to people that we engage with every single day. When we don't know these people, they're just abstract objects out there, then we have no compassion for these people. And we know that compassion is what motivates us to action. Romans chapter 2 verse 1 says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you, whoever you are who judge, for, what in, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. A lot of times we'll be condemning homosexuals and looking upon them as if, and as we talked about last week, we'll talk about them as if they're out there, they're sinners, they're bad, they're evil, they need forgiveness in us. You know, we're, we're great and we don't, we, you know, we followed God in most of our lives. We grew up in a Christian home. So we didn't really need 
that drastic of a, a spiritual transformation, but nonetheless, we accepted God and, and that's it. But they have to clean up their lives, clean up their act, and we hold them to a different standard. And that's not right. And on the opposite side of the spectrum, some of us don't know how to address this issue and we'll talk with insensitive, I can't talk. We'll talk without being sensitive. So some of us will go up to someone and say, hey, you're gay, but some people are murderers too. So we all, you know, we all sin and we look terrible. Once again, we look bad. I think there's a number of bad arguments people use, and I'm going to list four of them. Four arguments that I think don't address the issue at all. Number one, have you heard this argument? Many Christians will point out homosexuality is wrong just because it is is an unhealthy lifestyle or it is destructive to society. And they'll say, well, we know homosexuality is wrong because look at the way it affects society. Now, I, I think it's a bad argument, number one, because just because things are destructive doesn't mean that they should be morally evil or morally wrong. For instance, I bet you could, you could find a statistic that proves the more you skateboard in life, the more you're going to be injured and you might even have the possibility of breaking your neck and dying. But that doesn't mean that you can just say, so homosexuality. So that doesn't mean that you can say skateboarding is evil or morally wrong or that you shouldn't even skateboard. Also, general statistics are not on our side when it comes to this issue. And you can argue that they're biased or you could argue that they have an agenda. But here's a quote. It says, beliefs that lesbian and gay adults are not fit parents likewise have no empirical foundation. In other words, if you believe that gay people can't be good parents, There's no scientific evidence to prove that. That quote is not by the Atheist Foundation or the Homosexual Foundation. You know where it's from? The American Psychological Association. So if you have your statistic and you say, well, studies have shown that gay parents are not better uh, than a heterosexual family where you have a man and a woman, you're going against the APA. And what is the the average person going to believe? They're going to say that you're ignorant that you don't know what you're talking about. So I think that alone might not be a good argument. The second argument I don't think is good is a slippery slope fallacy. Let me explain what that is. Slippery slope fallacy, maybe you've heard it before in a different form, it goes like this. If you legalize homosexual marriage, what's next? You might have polygamy legalized and you might have uh, pedophiles want to get married and you might want people getting married to animals, and the whole thing is open. You never know what it's going to lead to. I'm sure you've heard that before, and if you ever share that with someone who is gay, you probably got slapped in the face because you're equating them who have these genuine feelings with people that have obviously depraved feelings, right? Or in their sight, depraved, worse off than what they feel. A slippery slow fallacy is a logical fallacy because it says, basically, you could say, take the same argument and say, well, if you go and you all have to eat, so eating can lead to food poisoning because if you're eating something, you might go to the diner and then after the diner, you might eat something that's not good for you and then you might get food poisoning and then you might die. So eating leads to death and therefore you should never eat. It's, it doesn't make any sense. So just because the effects can lead to something, it doesn't make the first 
premise wrong. So it doesn't mean just because opening the door for homosexuals to get married, that doesn't mean that all these things will happen or that the first thing is even wrong. Number three is many Christians have referred to the terms traditional marriage or family values. They might say something like this. Well, traditionally, it's always been this way. It's always been a man and a woman. So obviously, you can't have a man and a man or a woman and a woman because traditionally, that's what we do. But what is traditional marriage? What does traditional culture even say about that? Certain cultures might traditionally embrace polygamy. Many cultures do, especially in Africa. If we want to defend biblical marriage, I believe that we should call it for what it is, biblical marriage, not hide under uh, political jargon or politically correct jargon and say, well, traditional family values, things like that. I think it's just covering up what the Bible says. And I would also say on that point to beware of political activism, to beware of just trying to get laws changed in order to change people's hearts, because we know that's not the way it works. And I think some people are so adamant about this issue that they forget about other kinds of sexual sin. Like you might look at someone who's homosexual as if they're evil, they're, you know, you might treat them a little bit differently. And then you have friends all around you that engage in premarital sex. I'm willing to bet that every single one of you here might not have a homosexual friend, but you definitely have a friend that has, that is engaged in premarital sex. But that doesn't mean that we're going to go and have a law signed that says, you can't, you know, have sex before you're married. There, it's signed into law. We're not going to do that because obviously, how would you even regulate that? Everyone would just think we're weird. So just because we want to get laws signed, which might be a good thing or it might not be a good thing, we have to realize the heart behind the issue, the real problem isn't necessarily in the laws. Now, I'm, I'm definitely all for laws that, you know, keep us from being put in jail just because I'm up here and freedom of speech and all those kinds of things. And I'm not even saying I'm against the law for homosexual marriage because obviously I I am against that. What I am saying is that can't be our focal point. That can't be the only reason that we're uh, targeting this issue. So instead, we should view our friends that are homosexual just as we would view our friends that engage in premarital sex. And number four is homosexuality is wrong just because the Bible or God says so. How many of you have heard that argument? Well, it's just wrong just because God says. Oh, really? What if God said, you know what? Today is stealing is wrong. Yeah, I like that. Okay, we're going to make stealing wrong. And God just makes up the rules as he goes along. We talked a little bit about that last week too. And what we believe about God will dramatically affect how we live with others and how we view our lives. So if you believe God just makes up rules and things are wrong just because God says so, then we can imagine a world in which God says, all cute puppies are evil and should be put to death. And we're all forced to kill our cute little puppies. And we take little Pochi. I don't want to use Pochi. That's too, that's too close to my heart. We take, someone raise your hand. Who has a dog? What's its name? What? Dottie. We take Dottie and we're like, Dottie, I love you, but I have to kill you. <laughs> Sorry. I just didn't want to use my own personal example. I try to remain as, as emotionally detached from these messages as possible. Sorry. Shh. So, shh. 
Now that I've said all those negative things, let's talk about an argument that I believe is better. Here is the argument in a nutshell. Number one, all sins are an offense to God primarily and therefore also hurt humanity. All sins are an offense to God and hurt humanity. Number two, homosexuality is a sin. Number three, therefore, it follows that homosexuality is an offense to God and therefore hurts humanity. So in talking about homosexuality with our friends, let's talk about three things. So if you're, you ever lose track where I'm going with this, just remember three things. When you talk to your friends, talk about morality, talk about idols, and talk about freedom. I wish that was like an acronym, is it? MIF. <laughs> it's bad. Okay. Well, just remember that in the back of your minds. Morality, idols, and freedom. That's the way I believe it might be most effective to talking to our friends that are homosexual or embrace that lifestyle. So talking about morality, the real question is what makes anything really right or really wrong? People want to give up God, but in our culture today, they still want to ha ha man. <laughs> Andy didn't have this problem. I have this problem all the time. I was talking to Juliana about this like two seconds before I started. Like I always break out into random accents, so sometimes I can't stop it. It just comes out. I don't even know what I'm saying half of the time. Anyway, sorry. I'll edit this out. What makes anything really right or really wrong? People want to give up God in today's culture, and at the same time, they want to hold on to the ideas of right and wrong. They want to live basically as kings and queens without the guilt holding them back. They want to make up their own rules. If you remember King Henry the, the Eighth, if you ever learned in history class, he wanted to marry this, this other woman, but he was already married, and he, so he wanted to get a divorce. So he asked the Pope, can I get a divorce? He said, no. He said, well, I want to get a divorce, so I'm going to start my own church, and then I'm going to get a divorce. And that's exactly what he did. He started his own church, the Anglican church, just so he could follow his own rules and morality. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile, futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchange the natural use for what it is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves 
the penalty of their error which was due. And even though, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, but only, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So clearly, the Bible has a lot to say on this issue. It has a lot to say about the reason why people follow after their own desires. They reject the truth of God and they trade it for a lie because they wanted to take God and say, you know what, God, I want to follow my own rules. I want to do my own thing. And so homosexuality, in effect, as we're going to learn, is rebellion against God. Taking God, saying, God, you don't know what you're talking about. I, I have it down. I got, this, I got this life all together and I don't need you. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. I can live a happy life without you or your ways of doing things. But without God, morality is an illusion. An atheist, Richard Taylor, said this, the concept of moral obligation is unintelligible apart from the idea of God. The words remain, but their meaning is gone. The modern age, more or less repudiating the idea of a divine lawgiver, has nevertheless tried to retain the ideas of moral right and wrong without noticing that in casting God aside, they have also abolished the meaningfulness of right and wrong as well. Thus, even educated persons sometimes declare that such things as war or abortion or the violation of certain human rights are morally wrong, and they imagine that they have said something true and meaningful. Educated people do not need to be told, however, that questions such as these have never been answered outside of religion. He says, without God, there is no morality. You want to keep your idea of right and wrong, but they lose all their meaningfulness. Philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein once said, the world exists independent of my will. We find ourselves in a, in a world that we did not create. You didn't have a choice about the time and place where you live or the family that you were born into. A lot of things you were kind of just thrown into existence. And there are things that we can notice about the world that are objectively true. So we need to understand the difference between objectivity and subjectivity. Moral objectivity is something that really exists. Moral subjectivity says, well, it's your opinion. So objectivity, to break it down for you in case you don't understand it, objectivity says the thing really exists. Whether or not I believe it's there. Gravity is an objective truth. Whether or not you believe that gravity is there, if you jump up, you're going to fall down. It's something everyone can observe, even if no one in the world was there to see it. Subjectivity is things like opinion. You're saying, well, I like this ice cream, you like that ice cream, it's all subjective. So when we talk about moral objectivity and moral subjectivity, to say morals are objective means that everyone knows that they exist, regardless if there's even people around to observe them. When you say that morals are subjective, it's just saying, well, you think murder's wrong, I don't think it's wrong, so therefore, you know, it's everyone ha everyone's entitled to their own opinion. For example, the murdering of Jewish children 
in the Holocaust was objectively evil. And we can all say that here. But some people might say, well, it's just your opinion that you think that the murdering of innocent children is evil. But we can't really live like there are no morals. Some people like to argue saying, well, it's all your opinion. You think homosexuality is wrong. I don't think it's wrong. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, right? And some people, especially atheists, who want to get rid of God are left with moral subjectivity. So it's everyone's opinion and they don't know what to do with it. They're just like, well, yeah, I guess it's okay. I guess we can say that there are no morals. Morals are an illusion. You believe that there are things right in your life and wrong things in your life, but really there's nothing holding us down saying that you must or you ought or you should go in this way or you shouldn't. But in reality, we can't live like that, can we? I have a little story for you. There was a college student who believed there is no such thing as morality. There's no objectivity in morals. So he wrote a paper on it for his professor. He said, you know, he made it elaborate. It is like 20 pages long. Morality doesn't exist. People are entitled to their opinion. No one should judge other people. You shouldn't tell them what they should or shouldn't do. And at the end, he handed in his paper. He was so proud of it. His professor wrote, F, I don't like blue folders. <laughs> professor is entitled to his opinion. Why should he give him an A? We can't really live like there are no morals. Deep down inside, we know objective morals exist. But where does it come from? That's the real question that we all have to ask. We all know there are things at, such as right and wrong. But where in the world does it come from? Well, if you believe in God, it's obvious. And it makes sense that if God exists and God is the, the greatest conceivable being and he is good, that goodness flows from his character. He doesn't make it up. He doesn't claim what is good and he's not held by good, but he is good. So our grounding for morals come from the very nature of God himself. But on atheism, what could be the moral grounding? Now, here's an objection you might hear all the time. They might say, if God gave us our sense of morality and our conscience, how come we don't all have the same morals? So if you believe God is the authority on what is good, how come I don't believe, for instance, that homosexuality is wrong? And you do. Well, what that person is confusing is two different questions. I'm not going to give you the technical names because you'll, you'll, lose, uh, you'll lose me for the rest of the thing. But basically, one of the questions... Okay, I'll just say it. You're confusing moral ontology with moral epistemology. Moral epistemology says, what is the meaning or what is the meaning behind morals? Or how do we come to know morals? So moral epistemology asks the question, how do we come to know morals and that they really exist? Moral ontology says, is it there? Do morals exist? So you're confusing two different questions. The question isn't necessarily... How do we come to know these morals? How does God give us these morals? But are they there? And without God, it's impossible to know if things are really good or really wrong. So we don't, have all, we don't all have the same morals because our conscience themselves are seared by sin. So we might not all have the same ideas of what right and wrong is. But at the same time, for instance, an example, a child might not know all the details of the light spectrum. He might know, not know all the mathematics, what uh, speed the, the light will travel and and all those things but he knows the difference between darkness and light you don't have to explain that to him because it's something he can observe in the same way although we might not know every single thing about God's character 
Although our consciences might not be fully aligned with who God is, we can still know the difference between something that is right and something that is wrong. So ask your, the question to your friends. Without God, why is anything right or wrong? They might say our evolutionary nature tells us what is right and what's wrong. We don't need God. Our herd morality kind of develops. And as we evolve, we know what is right and is wrong. And then you could say, says who? Well, evolution does. Evolution didn't tell you that. You told me that. Well, it's something the majority of society would agree upon. They might say that as well. Well, if the majority of society agrees with it, then we should also agree with it. And that's, you know, we want to benefit the most people and make sure that the most people are, are comforted and we want the least possible misery for everybody. But then you could imagine a possible world in which the Nazis rule the world, the Nazis are the majority, and we would still say that a world filled with Nazis is still an evil world. We wouldn't say that the benefit of the majority of Nazis is a good world. We would say it's evil. So science can tell us what is, but it can't tell us what we ought to do. Statistics might tell you that skateboarding is dangerous, but it can't tell you that you shouldn't skateboard, if that makes any sense. Science can't tell you what you should do. It only gives you data. How we interpret the data is not from science. It's from our own philosophical understanding. And every person has uh, an understanding of their own morality. So someone that says, why do you believe that homosexuality is wrong? How can you say that? Why aren't you like us? They have their own standard of morality, which, from which we can ask, well, what, how did you come to know this belief? Why do you think that anything's right or anything's wrong? For example, if you had, you know, you're, you're driving, some of you guys drive now, you're driving down the road, and then a police officer pulls you over. You're held by the laws of the state to pull over your car. But if some random old man is driving behind you and is honking their horn and they pull on one of those lights and they're like, pull over! You'd be like, all right, you're a crazy old man. I'm not going to pull over. In the same way, once you remove the authoritative uh, head of God, you remove God from society, there is nothing over and above us to, to hold us to any moral standard. There is nothing saying that you should reach this standard of perfection because we're all left with each other. Jeffrey Dahmer, a cannibal and serial murderer said, if it all happens naturalistically, what's the need for a God? Can't I set my own rules? Who owns me? I own myself. He wondered if there's no God and we all came just from the slime, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? Now I'm not saying all atheists believe this, but the logical outworking of atheism is that you should do whatever is good for you. Why should you lower yourself to someone else? Arthur Allen Leff, a Yale professor, was tackling this issue. And he said, any time that you could come up with a standard of morality apart from God, you could always imagine a playground bully's response. Says who? So no matter what you say, you say, all right, well, I believe it's wrong. You shouldn't punch me, says who? I say, you know, you have nothing over and above you to commit you to those things. Therefore, he said, morality doesn't exist. But then he says, all I can say is this. It looks, that, it looks as if we are all that we have. Looking around the world, neither reason nor love 
nor even terror seems to have worked to make us good. And worse than that, there is no reason why anything should. Only if ethics were something unspeakable by us could law be unnatural and therefore unchallengeable. He says, without God over and above you, there's no reason to believe in right and wrong. He says, as things stand now, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. There is in the world such a thing as evil. Altogether now, says who? God help us. People have to think about what they're doing when they say that we should accept homosexuality. Why should we accept their standard of morality? Who are they to tell us what to do? And if God is the ultimate rule of goodness, then telling God to accept behavior he calls a sin is telling God that he has it all wrong. When we say, God, we have the standard, we, we're, we're pretty good without you, we know what we're doing, we're telling God that he's not really perfect, he doesn't know what he's doing. And so God, who is perfect, looked at us and says, uh, well, I think you're wrong, I think you're lying, I'm pretty sure I'm more perfect than you, and God, who is loving and perfect and just, has to correct us when we are in direct rebellion against him. Now you might say, what about equal rights? What about the person that's a homosexual and wants to visit their friend uh, their partner in a hospital. And we've all heard that dramatic story. I don't think that necessarily just getting married is going to solve all your issues. I think there's a lot of issues that happen after you're married. But I think, you know, those issues can be resolved regardless of homosexual marriage or not. I'm sure that most people, if they were engaged and one of their, uh, the significant other got in some terrible accident or something, they were in a hospital and they weren't able to see each other, they'd be pretty upset too. So I don't think just changing laws based on uh, what the minority wants is necessarily going to benefit everybody. So the second point, we went over morality. Now we got to talk about idols. So for morality, we know that apart from God, we don't really know why anything's really right or anything's really wrong. And for people to come up to us and say, you should accept homosexuality. You should accept homosexual marriage. Or why don't you? We have to look, step, take a step back and ask them what makes you have that standard. How did you come about with your standard of morality? So the second one is idols. Jonathan Katz wrote an article called The Invention, not Infection, of Heterosexuality. In this article, he argues that sex before was just, you know, uh, I'm trying to word this without being awkward. It was more to procreate than for pleasure and, and as uh, recreation. So he would say sex doesn't just function as a means of reproduction in our day. It functions as an idol that determines the worth of the people that worship it. So before, there was not such a big emphasis on having sex. It wasn't until the turn of the 20th century that people started putting emphasis, saying that you should have sex. And that's where the, the word homosexual even was invented. Before that, it was just, you know, it was your, your main goal in having sex was to have babies. And now, less and less, where our purpose is not to have babies and to reproduce. Our main purpose is for ourselves. Even without reading his article, I think it's pretty easy to to see that the American culture has idolized sex. 
It's seen in our advertisements. It's seen in media. Everywhere you look, people are worshiping sex. People build their entire, uh, their entire identities out of sex. And that's why I think a lot of people take homosexuality, and it's not just something that you do. It's not just something like, I am Alan Kahn, and I am also this. But you are a homosexual, and that is your entire life. And you'll see them in... Um, you know, political activism and all those kinds of things because they're building their entire lives upon their sexual identity. The advertisements and the media all try to drive this message home to every single one of you people here, and that's the message is that sex isn't just a good thing from God, but sex is everything. And so people devalue, uh, people determine their value of themselves by sex. And they determine themselves, and, and that's why I think a lot of people that are homosexual try to uh, be accepted by everyone because that's what gives them the value. Just like in your relationship with someone else, you have a guy and a girl and they're in a relationship. A lot of people put so much stock in that relationship where that relationship itself is their idol. And when, you know, you've probably thought of, uh, you can think of a person that you know that has a girlfriend who's a guy and... They spend all their time with each other. They spend like five hours a day on the phone. They go everywhere with each other. They don't even talk to their friends anymore. And once they break up, there's like, they're not even a human anymore. They, they lost all their identity. In the same way, some people might take something like sexuality and elevate it to idol status, to where it's not just a good thing, sexuality, but it's everything. But what is homosexuality? We have to define that first because a lot of people here might just be offended by the fact that I've been using this in such harsh language. Well, Gore Vidal, a bisexual political activist, said this, there is no such thing as a homosexual or heterosexual person. There are only homo or heterosexual acts. Most people are a mixture of impulses, if not practices, and what anyone does with a willing partner is of no social or cosmic significance. So this is what he says. He's not even a Christian. But he's saying that people aren't homosexual. You only have homo or heterosexual acts. And so right there, we, we know that, and I think in our culture, what we do is we take someone that's feminine and is a male, and we say, oh, they're going to be gay. Or we take someone that's masculine or a tom, tomboy that's a girl, and we say, oh, they're going to be gay too. And we look at those people, and we try to define them into a position that they're not subscribing to. And we're trying to make them fit into a mold. And we shouldn't conclude sexual behavior from mannerisms or anything else. Just like people shouldn't, although they do, you shouldn't determine that someone who has a British accent is always intelligent. <laughs> it's true. Perfect example. One Direction is not intelligent. And the hip British... Sorry. The Bible says, and this is where it gets backed up, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 10 says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or, or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves, etc., none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. It's the practice of homosexuality. It's not attacking your character because many people would feel like, oh, you're attacking me as a person. It's things that I cannot change. And that's not what the Bible does. 
You, by definition, are not a sinner. You, didn't, you weren't born, and that's what you are, and that you won't ever change because you are a sinner. But the things that the Bible targets are the things that we practice, the things that we have elevated to idol status that need not be there. I just wanted to say something here about how homosexuality hurts humanity because I know we talked about a little bit before that we don't want to just battle statistics with other people because we're going to lose if we talk about, you know, it's detrimental to uh, the family and society and things like that. But as for homosexual activity, the practice of it, there is no question to the damage they can produce in the individual. I got from uh, William Lane Craig's book, and it's on your sheet if you ever want to look it up later. Um, he has some statistics I want to share with you. 40% of homosexual men have a history of major depression. That compares with only 3% for men in general. Homosexuals are three times as likely to contemplate suicide as the general population. Our bodies are not designed for homosexual activity. It results eventually in such pro problems as prostate damage, ulcers, and ruptures, and chronic incontinence and diarrhea. 75% of homosexual men carry one or more sexually transmitted diseases wholly apart from AIDS. And even aside from those who die from AIDS, the life expectancy for a homosexual male is 45 years old. And if you include AIDS, that's 39 years old. So there are good reasons to reject homosexual activity and not orientation because of how it hurts humanity. And since we know the Bible talks about the practice of homosexuality, we can conclude and we can stop right there and say that no one is born a practicing homosexual. So you're not born gay. And this is the third thing, which is freedom. No one is born gay. Why do people even go to that argument? Why do people say, well, you can't, or everyone is born gay and you, you can't, what's the whole reasoning behind that argument? The reasoning behind that argument is that they feel like if you are born a certain way, you can't help it. You're destined or you're fated to one day, you know, go back in it. You're just going to repress those desires. You're going to say, well, I'm not homosexual anymore. And you repress those things, you push them down, but eventually they're going to come up again because you can't change your DNA. Well, the gay gene was something that was developed by Dr. Hammer in 1993. And... I'll save you the boring details, but that's the only study that has ever even put on the table saying there might be a gay gene, and people looked at the study and were like, well, that's a joke anyway. I have a different quote from someone else who's not even a Christian that will help summarize that. John DeKecko, professor of psychology at San Francisco State University and the editor of the 25-volume journal of homosexuality, expressed his view in a 1989 USA Today article. He says this, the idea that people are born into one type of sexual behavior is entirely foolish. Homosexuality, he says, is a behavior, not a condition, and something that people can and do change, just like they sometimes change other tastes and personality traits. I'm not saying that people choose to be gay. I'm not saying that. Because obviously some things don't feel like they're a choice. When we fall into sin, it doesn't feel like we chose to do those things. What I am saying is people aren't born gay. We're all born sinners. Just like you might feel it's natural to learn English as your first language. You didn't sit down and say, I'm going to learn English. It just felt natural to come to you, but it was something that was a learned activity. 
Even if it wasn't a learned activity, even if it was somehow in your DNA, we found the gay gene, would that mean that homosexuality is right? I don't think so. If we found a stealing gene in our DNA that says you are one day destined to steal something, that doesn't mean that we make an exception in all of our laws saying, yeah, but for the people that steal things, it's okay for them or any other kind of gene. Just because it's in your DNA does not mean that you, are, you have the inability to act otherwise. You might say, what about follow your heart? Well, Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? The heart is wicked and we all know that to be true. So you might say, well, we can't repress our true feelings, the real you. I think that's kind of like saying to someone that's addicted to porn that, well, I can't stop lusting when I look at porn. Well, obviously that's not going to happen. You're, you're putting yourself in that situation. Sometimes desires aren't just going to immediately go away, but that doesn't mean that you're going to give in to those things and that you don't have a choice. Everyone always has a choice. That's the one thing you don't have a choice about. It's the fact that we all have choices. Now think about the first person that you ever liked. Think about them right now. Might be awkward. They might be in this room. Nevertheless, think about them. At the time when you liked that person, remember the butterflies? How when you talked to them, you couldn't even talk and couldn't even speak and you looked at them and you had to like turn your head. It just made you feel all gooey and mushy inside. That's what people tell me. I've never been through this, but that's what they tell me. Now remember, at that time you're like, there is no one else that I'll ever love. No one else I'll ever be with. And now that exact same person, you're probably embarrassed to even think about that person. You thought at that point in time you would never change. But now you're a changed person. In the same way, people might feel at the time that they're in, I will never change. But is that true about anything about you? Every single thing about you here has changed in the past year. Your skin cells have changed. Your brain has changed. It's grown. Your body has changed. Your memories have been added onto. Everything about you has changed. So why say that there's one thing about me that will never change, and it's the fact that I'm holding on to this one sin? Sex and relationships cannot give our lives ultimate meaning. Only God can fill that hole. Only God can really satisfy that desire of that longing heart. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says, For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievement and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. So the skeptic might say, well, okay, maybe your heart is evil and, and all those things, but isn't it harmful or even unnatural to deny your feelings and attractions? How is it freedom if you always have this propensity to go back to that same sin? Well, I would question, what does the word freedom mean? Does the word freedom that mean that you have no restraints at all? Obviously not. If you said, well, I have complete freedom in driving. I'm going to drive on whatever side of the road I want. You're going to get yourself killed and kill other people. What if you said freedom in eating means I eat all the food I want whenever I want? You're not going to be in very good shape. Freedom doesn't mean having no limitations Freedom means having the right limitations. Just like on the musical scale, musical freedom means playing in the same time, same time signature as everyone else, the same key as everyone else when you're playing in a band. 
it doesn't mean you can play whatever you want and you're just like, all right, guys, play. And then you play with no time signature and no chord, sing no chord signature. <laughs> you just don't play with the band. And you're going to sound like a mess. True freedom means having the right limitations. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 34 says, Jesus said to the people who, d who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. And 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So in conclusion, I know that was a lot, and I'm sorry. I keep apologizing every message, but it's because I'm bad at oratating what I'm trying to say. All this, what we learned about morality, idols, freedom, these topics, these should drive us to reach the people that we know that are homosexual. And not in a way where we go up to them and we're just like, all right, I know it's wrong now. You go up to them in love, in compassion. Be friends with them. Don't even have it in your agenda to go up to them and say, okay, I'm going to go up and I'm going to win this person to Christ and I'm, that's my goal. You know, that's a good goal, but make friends with them. Go up to them and love them. Do something as Jesus would do to that person. Find a way to reach that person and then ask them the hard questions about morality. What makes anything good or evil? About idols. Why is it that you have built your entire life upon this? And they might not even realize it. You might have to expose their idols and show them saying, what would you do if your, signifi if your significant other left you? Or what would you do if um, you were diagnosed with AIDS or things like that. Ask them the hard questions and then give them the message of freedom at the end. Tell them that they are, they are never required to follow any one rule or another. We are slaves to sin, but we always have a choice to submit ourselves to the Lord. So here are the practical tips to take away. Number one, with morality, we have to ask the question, what makes anything right or wrong? We, we, we mustn't minimize, mustn't minimize. Maybe it's the way I'm typing my notes. They're all just like, when you have two of the same sound next to each other, I don't know what it's called, but. We shouldn't minimize the holiness of God to fit our sinful dispositions. I don't know if you caught that, but we can't take God and say, God, you have to be less holy so you fulfill this standard that I've developed for myself. And that's what homosexuality is. It's in rebellion to God's institution. God, I know you made one man and one woman and you designed them for each other and you designed their parts for each other, but I don't, I reject that. I'm going to do my own thing. With idols, we can reach homosexuals by identifying and addressing the weakness of their idol, which is their sexuality. We know that sexuality as identity can never fill the God-shaped hole. No matter what, they're always going to be lacking. They're always going to be having something missing in them. And with freedom, we can correct the mistaken notion that God destines homosexuals to fight a battle that they can't win. And that's probably the, the, the weight that they feel on themselves, and that's the lie that they give into, thinking that God hates me. God never wants me to come into fellowship with him, which isn't true at all. I'm not saying that they have to reject every single desire that they ever have to, in order to come to God. It just means deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. That's what every Christian is called to do. 
Now, for information on how to fight any sin that you're enslaved to, you can listen to a previous podcast called The Ghost in the Machine. I taught on like last month. But that's that whole thing, and that would be like the third part to this message. But obviously, we went over our time for today. So let's pray.